If you have a Bible this morning and you'd read along in our scripture text with us, uh, we'd like you to do so. We're going to take a reading from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to do something just a little different. We're going to kind of begin halfway through the chapter and read into the next chapter to kind of conclude the thought. I don't know that it's all included here at the end of this chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading. um, We'll start in verse 6, and then we'll continue reading into chapter 4, and we'll try to conclude around verse 7. So again, 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 6. And as I always do, I got it wrong. Verse 5. I'm sorry. It says this. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stone, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious, glorious, had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, not as Moses which put a veil over his faith, face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Going into the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power 
may be of God and not of us. That'll conclude our reading this morning, and that's reading Second Corinthians chapter three, verse five through chapter four, verse seven. Um, this morning, I want to do something maybe a, a little bit different than what is a typical. I want to tell you today that I, the next two weeks, what I'm going to preach on, uh, which is obviously not uh, normally how I do that or do things, but because I've been thinking over the last number of weeks about our upcoming revival, certainly my mind and heart has a desire to begin to prepare for that. Our church has set aside 10 days where we're going to uh, put extra emphasis and attention towards most often people who do not know the Lord. And seeing as our church has a number of people who by their own words and profession um, don't know the Lord, I feel it necessary to begin to prepare our hearts for that cause. About a week ago, I was speaking to a friend whose daughter is lost and does not know the Lord. And at one point, she was down praying late at night. And he said, strangely, she will randomly pop up in the middle of her prayer. And she's very diligent in her prayer and ask a question. And... One of the questions that she popped up and asked has really taken hold in my mind. And that question was, why do saved people pray for lost people when there's nothing they can do? Why do saved people pray for lost people when there's nothing they can do? And that has really uh, taken a hold of my mind quite a bit in my own personal studies Um, And I feel like it is a question worth presenting before you. Why is it that we are diligent in different areas when at the core of her question there is a degree of truth to it? One of the great fallings of our time, perhaps the greatest deception in the history of the world religiously, has been the notion that mankind can intervene when somebody is lost and separated from God and can help them be saved. That's typically manifest with people coming forward, repeating a preacher's prayer that in the end has them either make a decision or accept Christ as their personal Savior. And then the preacher readily confirms afterward, now just believe the Bible that you are saved when that person has not experienced any conversion or change that is discernible to themselves. To put simply, you will know when you're saved. And no man will have to intervene to convince you that you are or that you are not. Nonetheless, there is a balance here, I believe, that we want to try to bring before you and... I wrote something yesterday, and it's, not, it's certainly not very good. I didn't spend a lot of time on it. It was more to develop my thoughts than anything. But I want to read it to you for your consideration as we look at this Scripture verse that I think um, does this. So before I read this, I want to title our next two sermons, How to Help Lost People. How to Help Lost People is the title of our next two messages. 
And the title of today's message specifically is, When Saints Shine. When Saints Shine. So here's what I've written. As we approach revival, I want to address something which always weighs heavily upon, upon me during these seasons. I have noticed a trend which has no doubt developed as a part of our immediate gratification culture that sees churches and saints wrongly pressure lost people about being saved. They focus on what the lost person can do or what they are not doing in order to be saved. The result of this, more often than not, leads to discouragement, confusion, or exhaustion on both the lost and the saved. The opposite side of this problem is a detachment on the side of saved people. They conclude simply, well, we can't save them, and thus relegate their actions and attitude to a detached state of mind. I believe both of these responses to lost people seeking the Lord are harmful to both the lost and to the Lord's churches. As we begin our message today, my desire is to bring out some of the things in this text. And so I'm going to take the long way around to get here, but please stay with me before we do that. As the Bible illustrates, there is a warfare going on in this world that is not discernible to the human eye. The forces of darkness, which our culture has successfully convinced the majority of people that this spiritual realm does not exist. Satan has won the victory in the heart of a human being when he has convinced them he does not exist. Because thus, that person will be completely oblivious to the many tactics that he, in God's word, employs against both lost and saved people. This demonic world, at Satan's disposal, he has many helpers, many demons that the Bible teaches us that exist. And they are roaming about to and fro in this, or in this earth. And please hear me today, their objective is not your misery. That is not their objective. People have wrongly suspected that when things are going well in my life, God is blessing me. When things are going bad in my life, the devil is hurting me. That is not the case. The devil is elated if the way that he can harm a person is by making them extremely wealthy, happy, and comfortable, Satan is thrilled at that opportunity. If it would harm that same person to make them feel like God has forsaken them and to impose upon them great pain and suffering, to me, Satan does not care which form or which tactic that he employs as long as his end objective is met. And that is 
the destruction of as many souls in an eternal place of damnation as he can possibly get there. That's all he cares about. That's his end game. And as human beings, particularly in a culture that is obsessed with immediate gratification, we as Christians must back away from the temporal and have our minds fixed on both the eternal desire God has for us as well as the eternal desire that Satan has for all of humanity. And when our minds and our objective become the same thing that Satan is, then we can begin to war within, with him on an equal playing field. But as long as we're considering both, devoted to the ease and comfort of our lost loved ones, and simultaneously concerned with their lost eternal state, he has the advantage. Have you ever uttered the prayer for somebody, Lord, whatever it takes? That's a terrifying prayer, isn't it? But is it not appropriate in consideration to what's at stake? It is. Satan employs some tactics towards lost people. If you're here and you're lost this morning, I hope that you are aware that he uses these tactics in order to prevent you as much as possible from trusting in Lord as your Savior. Here's a few of these. Here's a popular one uh, towards people in the world today who are opposed to religion. They point out the sin in saved people. So if you didn't know this, breaking news, I am imperfect. I'm very imperfect. And I've never claimed to be perfect or anywhere close to it. Nobody in this building that I know has ever claimed to be perfect. As a matter of fact, the longer that I listen to the people in this church, the more I hear them bemoaning their imperfections than boasting their perfection. And that is the case with most people who are true servants of the Most High God, is that they recognize how fallen and broken and depraved that they are and how they lament their sin and the implications their sin has on the people around them. How often do I utter the prayer, Lord, allow me to pay the consequences of my sins and not the people around me, especially my children and grandchildren who prayerfully are forthcoming. Lord, please protect them from that. And yet Satan, one crafty tool that he uses to dissuade people from ever seeking after God or considering the words and the truth of the glorious gospel of Christ is by pointing out that those people who proclaim themselves to be followers of Christ are imperfect people, thus their words should not be listened to. And yet I would challenge that same form of logic to ask, then who in this world are you possibly going to follow? What group of people... What institution, what ideology changes a person so radically that on the outside they're perfect and worthy for you to follow? 
You see, what the message of the gospel is, is not come be a part of a church so that you can do everything that we want you to do so that it will gratify us. Rather, what we preach and teach is that we are a group of fallen people who sought after the Lord, whom God changed internally, and the man that we serve is 100% perfect, and we adore him, and we praise him, and we worship him, and we know that the change that he has wrought within, that he has perfected the spirit within us that is conformed to the image of Christ, and that one day these depraved bodies that are full of sin are going to die, but God is not done with his work because he's going to raise these mortal bodies and make them incorruptible, and they're going to be perfectly shaped after Jesus Christ, and that day I'm going to be perfect, and so will you. In other words, God's still working on me. He's doing a work inside of me that he is trying to work its way out. I don't claim to be perfect, but don't let Satan's attack that God's people are imperfect dissuade you from the perfect message that we preach. What else does Satan do? He tempts people to be bitter at God because they experience hardship in life. This is a a really popular one today. And it's only going to grow because of the brokenness of our culture. The more that our culture breaks, the greater brokenness we will find in our young people. And that's what we're finding today. You recognize that the majority of young people now do not grow up in a home where both biological parents are there. I grew up in one of those homes. And let me tell you, it's not easy. I'm not bemoaning it. I'm just stating a fact. It's not easy. There are unique experiences that people have from those homes, and the majority of young people, very early in life, go through that. They feel this pain. Other people see the effects of sin in a way that hurts, they have been abused in one of many ways by people who are supposed to love them. And that hurts them. Makes an indelible mark upon their heart and upon their mind that as they grow in life, they continuously respond out of bitterness towards that one event or that one occurrence. Some people have the unfortunate experience of losing a loved one very early in life, a mom or a dad, and they become orphaned to some degree. And so what Satan does is he convinces them God could have stopped that. God didn't stop that. So you ought to be bitter towards God because God didn't stop that. Again, this is doing, I hope you know what Satan always does, taking a part of the truth, manipulating it, and convincing somebody of an absolute falsehood. The reality is, God allows in his permissive will many things to occur in life that God wishes wouldn't happen. Do you recognize that? Do you realize that God often grieves at the de- more so than what mankind does at the decision and pain that mankind causes? And yet God in his wisdom has given men and women freedom to make choices 
And the danger with freedom is you can use your freedom for the good and you can do it for the bad. And what people want a world of is a world where God only allows good, but he doesn't allow pain and bad and the implicate or, or the consequences of bad. Well, listen, you get either one or you get the other. You get a world of freedom where good and bad can take place or you get a world of control where good and bad don't take place. And yet Satan has dissuaded many people from being followers of Christ because the pain that they experience. What else is an obstacle for lost people? Receptive hearts. Receptive hearts. I hope if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, that the attitude of your heart is this. I want the gospel message. I want to know the Lord. And I'll do whatever is required of me to come to know him. That is the attitude that you need. That nothing will get in your way from seeking after and finding Christ. And yet what we find in the Bible is that, unfortunately, that is the attitude of few. Many people can be bought out by Satan. He offers them things. All the pleasures of the world. All the aspirations of success. And their peers applauding them. And so many people, when they think about a life of service to Christ and coming to know him, or the offer that Satan and the world makes, it's a no-brainer according to our culture. Well, you go and you make yourself happy. And so they're not receptive in the sense that if they get what they perceive to be a better offer, they take that instead. And that's an obstacle for many lost people from ever seeking and finding the Lord. The last one I'll cover, I think we've experienced here at this church. Discouragement from failing to find the Lord. Discouragement from failing to find the Lord when you've sought him. I said at Mount Lebanon when we went there a, few, a, week, a little over a week ago that when I see a young person seeking after the Lord and get up and walk away and they're not been saved, that resonates with me at a level that I can't really explain. Because I remember so perfectly the discouragement and the hopelessness that I felt. That in my mind, I've done everything. I have prayed with all of my heart and mind. And there's nothing else for me to do. And I walk away discouraged. On the, on the edge of just saying, just forget it. You know, just why try if I know it's going to end up the same? That was my thinking. There's a lot of flaws in that thinking. And I'm not going to go through all of them at the moment. But recognize that's the lack of faith right there. <laughs> and I'm not going to go deeply into this. So... The question then becomes, what do we do about those things? We've listed four things this morning. Tactics that Satan can use or does use to harm lost people. 
And here as a church, we've come together and we've especially set aside a time where we're saying we want to put some emphasis and focus on helping these lost people. So we're going to open up the doors and we're going to allow the preaching of the gospel to take place, which is a wonderful thing that needs to be done. But I contend this morning that there is more that we can do to aid our lost people and their seeking after the Lord that will promote and encourage and literally aid them in finding the Lord. We can't pray a prayer that saves them. That's correct. But we can bring them closer to the foot of the Savior and combat some of the things that we spoke about this morning very effectively with God's help if we'll draw together and attempt to do it by God's grace. You see, Paul here begins by telling us something very important. You see, the temptation on our end, especially when we find lost people in the state that some of ours are in, in this state of discouragement, that state of discouragement causes us to try to push harder. And what I'll say this morning is that twice in our text, what Paul says is that this is not of ourselves. We have no literal power to do something that will cause a change in their circumstance. What we recognize is that the only thing we can do is allow God to use us in a fashion, but it is his use. It is him deciding of his own sovereign power to put you on like a glove, use you despite what you want or can or cannot do, and use his power and his perfect will to accomplish what he wants upon the hearts of lost people. I believe in the instrumentality of mankind, in God's will and work. Here, Paul is saying, it is not of ourselves that we can do anything. But then he begins to make this comparison. And the point of this comparison is to bring forth one of the tools that God uses us for, or one of the ways that God uses us. So what he does is he said this, there are two covenants There are two promises that God made. The first one is called the Old Covenant, actually the word testament. We call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those word testament ought to be the word covenant. It should be called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant was given by God to Moses in the form of the law. And what we learn in the scriptures all throughout the Old and the New Testament is that the end of the purpose of the law was to bring about death and condemnation. And listen this morning, if I was to get up today and I was to preach about God's law and God's rules and what the word says that we are responsible for, what all of us ought to feel is a sense of condemnation in that, a sense of death in that, because we recognize that we have been held responsible for a standard that we have miserably failed to keep. And so what 2 Corinthians 3 says was this, God delivered the law to Moses. Now, many people think, The law is sinful or bad because of that reason. And the Bible convinces us otherwise. It says that there is no sin or anything wrong with the law. What's wrong with the law is that we are unable to keep it. See, we got to understand all the law is, is a reflection of God's character. It's God's character and those ways that he acts imposed upon us. And what we recognize when the law comes is, We're nothing like God. God is so high and holy and perfect, and he expects 
to fellowship with people who are like him. So he gives his standards to be able to do so. And we find ourselves finding, falling woefully short. And that's what part of the gospel message is to preach is that there is a law that God has set forth and to have fellowship with him, you can't, you have to keep it. And then to recognize every person has to recognize of their own selves. I can get up and preach it. I can berate you with it. But ultimately what is necessary is for the spirit of God to convince your heart I am unable to fellowship with God because I am a sinner unworthy of his presence. When a person comes to that recognition, they're in a good place. If they're feeling guilty, if they're feeling condemnation, if they're feeling broken and contrite and all these biblical words that we can use and they're feeling unworthy of God's presence, that person is in a good place. But what this scripture text was saying is that is the end of the law. And yet it tells us something very important. Did you know when God gave that law to Moses, he called Moses up to Mount Sinai? And Moses was instructed, bring up two tablets because he destroyed the previous two tablets for some sin of Israel. So Moses brings up these two tablets and God writes the law on it. And there, Moses is communing with God and God is giving to him his message. And do you know what happens to Moses being in the presence of God? His face lights up with the glory of God. Or in other words, God is such a holy, incredible being that when a man was in the presence of him, the effect and physical impact it had upon that man is that his face literally shined because of how perfect and magnificent and majestic that our God is. He descended from the mountain and he came to the people to give them God's law. And the people said, we can't look at you. You got to put something over your face. We can't look at you because you're so bright. The effect that God has had on you is so profound that our natural eyes cannot perceive it because it's too much for us. And so what did Moses do? He put a veil over his face that it would protect them from seeing the glory and majesty of the effects of God. And here's what Paul is saying. That ministry that Moses was given was so great, it even caused Moses' face to shine. And yet, that ministry passed away because it was so imperfect, because it was so incomplete. God did away with that. And yet the power of it was still profound. And then he begins to talk about the ministry that we have. And he says, if Moses' message and ministry was so great that his face shone and yet it was temporal, how much greater the power and glory and effect will the ministry that we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit of the gospel of Christ have upon people if we allow the effects of it to shine upon us. 
He's saying this ministry will never go away. It is perpetual and forever. And it's the gospel of Christ. It is this, that in the law we find death. and the law we find the guilt of sin. But in the gospel we find this man Jesus Christ who came to bring life and transformation to the heart of men and to impute to men and women the perfect nature that he has that he would clean up and completely forgive all sin in the hearts of human beings and place within them the perfect nature of Christ and that that change would be so incredible that Paul would say just a chapter later that we're, the old creature has completely died and passed away and behold to that person who has been saved they're a new creature and everything about them is different. And Paul is saying here, we've been given this ministry. We have been given this this truth, this gospel message, and it can have such a, please hear this, it can have such a powerful effect upon the Christian that just as Moses' face shone with the glory of Christ, so you and I can shine brighter and brighter so people might see it and be gravitated towards the glory of Christ. Of Christ. That's what he says in the very last verse. He says this. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image. We, you and I, are changed to be more, appearing more like Christ. Let me give you an example of this in the scriptures. Do you remember when they seized that man Stephen? That man Stephen was a deacon. Note that. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon. And he was having a profound effect because he would get up and he would share the gospel of Christ with people. And the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 6 that he had the face or they perceived him to have the face as the face of an angel. What are they trying to say? Something was different about that man. I don't think it's talking physical. It's saying that the disposition and spirit that he had that was emanating from him as those Jewish people were arguing with him, it said they could not resist the power and the wisdom wherewith Stephen spoke. You see, I can get up here and you've heard me do it before and stomp and rant and slam my fist and talk till I'm blue in the face and there is no power in it. And then you've heard men get up here and preach and they're preaching an old message that you've heard many times before. But the gospel message has power in it. And it takes a hold of you and your attention as you realize I'm not listening to a man. God is speaking to me in a place that usually when I sit in church, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm not hearing a good, well, well-spoken message. I'm not hearing eloquence. I'm not hearing some diatribe or some thing that a man has got upon his mind. But something is grabbing a hold of me and speaking to me, and I want to know more of it. That's what happened with Stephen. Except for those people were hostile towards the gospel of Christ. Because he was proclaiming Jesus to be the very thing that they didn't want Jesus to be. And so there he's up, and he's preaching this message about Jesus Christ. And oh, the people are enraptured by it. They can't, they can't, you know, you ever seen something and it's so bad you can't look away? That's how those men were. They disagreed with it. But there was power that was grabbing them to it. Those men got so angry at the end, they grabbed him and they killed him. 
But his message continued to shine. Because there was a lost man there who saw the glory of Christ in Stephen. He saw Stephen with the face of an angel. He heard the power and the wisdom he spoke in. And the Bible tells us three chap- two chapters later, rather, that man's walking. He's walking and he's, he's got hatred in his heart. He's so sick of these people who talk about Jesus as the Messiah. He's so sick of religion. He's so sick of all these things. And he's walking. And that seed that by the power of Christ in Stephen that was planted into that man, another light shines. A greater light shined. And it came directly from God himself. And it was so great it blinded the man. And Jesus began to speak to him. Lost friend today, I want you to know, I can wail away. And I might even be able to employ some psychological strategies to make you feel guilty. I never try to do that, but I've seen people do it before. And I may be able to impose upon you, through the help of the Spirit, good conviction of sin. And these brothers and sisters could get up and testify or sing or do some act of service that could do that. But listen, there comes a moment in time in everybody's life where God himself shines to you and he speaks to you. And the power he uses, as I spoke earlier, the bad pain in your life. He loses the emptiness of the triumphs in your life. And he speaks to you directly. And Paul asked this wonderful question. Who are you? Who are you? He doesn't fight it. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't avoid it. He just cries out, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecuted. Jesus asked him a question that I think goes right back to chapter 7 of Acts. He says, is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? This is my personal opinion what that means. Stephen, with the glory of God shining through him, God used to prick Paul's heart. And Paul, as he continued rebelling against God, would think back to that man Stephen and the message of the gospel that he preached. And he killed that man. And he saw the sincerity of that man. And he saw the power of that man. And listen to me. He saw a glory and a brightness in that man that he did not find in other religion. He didn't find it amongst the Pharisees. He didn't find it among all the other sects of people who were proclaiming they had the truth. There was something about that man, Stephen, that shined to the degree that days and weeks and perhaps months later as he left them, it continued to prick Paul's heart. And God used it. You see, do you realize what I'm trying to tell you this morning? Saved friend, if you want to help lost people, Let the glory and character of Christ shine through you. That's how you help them. Parents today that have lost children, don't put pressure on your children what they need to do when they're sitting here. Don't put pressure on your brothers and sisters as to make sure you obey the Lord. Yes, that's true. But you live according to the dictates of the Spirit in your life every day. 
Walking when you wake up in the morning, asking God, Lord, what can I do to shine the glory of Christ upon my children? How can I be led of your spirit to show such a unique love to them and to the people around me that I could be like Stephen, even of the men who were killing him and stoning him? He was so much like Jesus that he looked up to the heavens and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How much more like Christ can you become than in your dying? dying hour, you're laying down your life, not for your friends, as Jesus said, but even as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, for your enemies. That's a profound God-given agape love that the world or the average Christian knows nothing of unless God gives it to him. But when God gives it to him, it shines in a way that no artificial religion can do. We cannot get up and I can, I can harangue around here over and over trying to preach it, but until people see the glory of Christ in us, that's what has the power. Here he's saying, that glory, I love this. Why is it so important? I told you last week I got a burden for the discipleship of our young people. Why? Why is that so important? Because there's differing degrees of brightness. And Christians, right? When you're just a little light, when you're just saved, you're a little light. And even Paul only showing a little bit at first. And then he went and he got schooled. He got taught. By who? By Jesus himself. And he grew. And he got brighter and brighter and brighter. And then you pick up Acts 13 and you read to chapter 28, the end of the chapter. And then you pick up all the books of, of Paul that he wrote and what you realize, that man grew and matured. And listen to me, the mirror was bigger so the light could shine greater. That's all we are as Christians. We don't have light in of ourselves. What are we? We're a mirror. And you get a little mirror, and you get a light, you can make a small reflection. You get a vast mirror and a great, great light, all the more power that it has. Our first message today, how do we want to help lost people? We reflect the character of Christ in us. I think in our last revival, we saw a little bit of that. You know, those first few nights, especially when people were saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do here, I'll do it. If you want me to get up and sing, and I can reflect your glory in that, that's what I'll do. If I can get up and testify and tell my testimony of salvation, if I can share something that God has placed in my heart that's a unique experience that I have that, su that supports the word of God in my own life, Lord, I'll do that. And so what we can do as God's people as we prepare for revival services is pray, God, help me over these next two weeks to in my home and around lost people in my life reflect your glory and reflect your brightness. And then when I get into the house of God, continually look to the heavens and say, Lord, I know that you have uniquely placed me here and allowed me to experience this vast array of experiences that can reflect your glory. And if you'll give me the privilege and the unction of your spirit to speak up and to stand up and share those things. If you'll be with me to do it, it can have a great impact on the hearts of people. It can be like Stephen and merely plant the seed or it can water those things and see the growth directly that God has for it. But either way, if I can be a participant in reflecting the glory of Christ, as Isaiah said, as Jeremiah said, as the prophets of old said, here I am, send me to do it. 
That's what we want. I loved hearing the people in our church in our last revival who rarely speak get up and talk and share those things which are deep within because it reflects the glory of Christ in their life. Let me tell you this. I say this carefully. Don't, please don't misrepresent what I say. In the word, there is great power. Right? It has great power. But I think sometimes in the heart of a human being, it has greater power when it is expressed as having been applied to the human life and heart. You understand what I'm saying? We can take an abstract thought and I can tell it to you and God can use it with power. But listen, when a man or woman has experienced something deeply and God's glory has shined through that and then God uses that as a platform to share it with other people, what I've experienced in my own life is that often yields greater power in the heart of people than the abstract principle by itself. It's no less true. It's just brought to life to our sinful hearts and minds. Or in other words, God wants to use you and your life to help soften the ground, plant the seed and water it in the life of these lost people. Don't be shy to do it. If you're a young person, let me guarantee you something. You're going to be nervous before you stand up to speak if God has saved you. You're going to feel tempted not to do it. Then you're going to get up and you're going to stutter. And you're going to stammer around a little bit, likely. And you're going to say things or pause in ways that some of these older people don't. You know what I say to that? Who cares? Who cares? What matters is that you're attempting to reflect with your mirror the light of Christ. And often... Please hear me this morning. Often, these young people sprinkled throughout here, they expect it from me. They expect it from Brother Ron and Brother Steve and Sister Peggy and some of us that have gotten up and testified in times past about God's goodness. But when you see the light coming from a dim mirror, that's what Paul said in verse 18. He compared it to a mirror. Not me. When you see that light that doesn't usually shine on that mirror reflecting Suddenly you stand up and you listen and you say, wow, I see the light always coming from that mirror, but I've learned to tune it out and turn from it. But that one, I want to see what kind of light that it gives. If you've been saved and you've never told it, let your light shine. That may be the light that people need. It's not about you. It's about the light reflecting from you. Paul is trying to bring us, he's trying to encourage us. Because what he's saying is, that light was bright that Moses had and it died. How much greater the light that we have. Then he goes on in chapter 4, and I'm going to conclude with this. He says, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them who are lost, whom the God of this world has blinded, lest they see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. In this room right now, I want you to imagine we have this whole bunch of of mirrors in here in this room. And many lost people have oriented themselves away from it. But there's a couple dim ones out here. This way. And they have safely placed themselves within the influence of those dim lights. Or excuse me, those dim mirrors. 
because they know it's not going to have the same impact. Now imagine if they begin to shine. Imagine if we had a church full of people who were emanating the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Where are they going to turn to not see the gospel of Christ? That's what we want. We don't want to pressure them. We don't want to badger them. We don't want to guilt them. We don't want to have all these, 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 these things where we're talking in, 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 in hidden speak, like we're trying to talk to somebody, but we're not calling them by name. We don't want that. We don't need it. That's what Paul's saying. We don't need it. We've got the ministry of Christ. It's powerful enough. What we have to do is get in a place where they can see it and clean us up enough where we can reflect it. And when that happens, the power of the gospel is enough to do the saving. We don't have to do anything else. Our first encouragement this morning as we prepare for revival to help lost people is to to let us, let the saints of God shine. That's what we need. I ask you over these next two weeks, for these lost people that we both love, if you've got sin in your life as a Christian, go to God. Get it right. Get it right. Repent. And then, offer yourself to Him. Starting now, today. And what I'll say is this. The Bible teaches us God works in mysterious ways. He doesn't work according to the judgments and expectations of men. Sometimes he will guide you to do something you've never done before. And if you're sure that it is the Spirit of God, don't worry about the judgment. Don't, don't say, you know, I never talk and I've talked twice this week. I don't want to talk again. Don't do that. Don't do that. Surrender yourself to him. That's the first way, and I believe the most potent and powerful way We can help our lost people. That's our message this morning. I pray that God would use it in your heart as he has revealed it to mine today.